Hallo, dieser Podcast wird Ihnen präsentiert vom IT-Dienstleister Adesso. Mehr über das Unternehmen unter www.ki.adesso.de/industrie. Viel Spaß beim Zuhören. Hallo liebe Zuhörerinnen und Zuhörer, das ist die Podcast-Folge Nummer 79 des Podcastes KI in der Industrie. Mein Name ist Robert Weber, ich sitze im Würzburger Homeoffice und mir virtuell gegenüber sitzt in München. Peter Seeberg, guten Morgen Robert, schönen Gruß an unsere Zuhörer, Zuhörerinnen zur ersten Folge in diesem Jahr. Zur ersten richtigen Folge sozusagen, wo ihr uns beide hört, weil wir hatten ja schon eine. Ersten richtige, genau. Erste, die wir jetzt mit aktuellen Teil aufnehmen, so Sehr ist schön. es gemeint. Haben. Wir haben heute, äh, aktueller geht es eigentlich nicht, wir haben heute äh, den Calvin im Interview, der hat ein Unternehmen gegründet, Conductive AI, für ähm, AI in der Semiconductor-Produktion und äh, der erzählt später, da hören wir gleich rein, der erzählt, er ist ein Trump-Flüchtling, der ist also abgehauen, als Trump Präsident wurde mhm. und jetzt haben wir ihn im Interview. Ja, also die letzten Tage der Präsidentschaft Trump sind angebrochen und jetzt haben wir auch noch einen Trump-Flüchtling im Akt in unserer Folge. Ja, sehr spannend. Mhm. Was hast du im aktuellen Teil, Peter? Ja, bei mir geht es äh, zuerst um Daten, Daten in der Form von Zahlen, nämlich die Erkenntnis, um mal mit Daniel Kehlmanns Vermessung der Welt, ähm, der ja. eine oder andere, der das Buch Schuss. gelesen hat, ich habe es ich noch nicht gelesen, werde es vielleicht machen, aber ich hab, normalerweise finde ich die, die Ruhe nicht dafür, so viel Zeit da reinzustecken, aber es geht um die gewachsene Bedeutung in unserer Gesellschaft von Daten und Zahlen. Daten, also die Grundlage, wie wir alle wissen, für maschinelles Lernen, für KI, vorangetrieben in diesem Fall durch Corona. Also unser Alltag wird ja immer stärker, nicht ungleich, hätte ich gesagt, KPIs, also Key Performance Indikatoren, die wir alle, die meisten von uns zuhören, zuhören in den Firmen, in unseren Firmen, aber auch in unseren Anlagen, ob es jetzt geht um Umsatz pro Woche, pro Mitarbeiter, pro Monat oder bei den Anlagen Ausschuss, täglicher Ausschuss, monatliche Leistung und so weiter, ist auch immer stärker unser Leben durch Zahlen bestimmt. Ganz wichtig in diesen Tagen ist halt eben der Inzidenzwert, der bestimmt, ob wir in die Stadt einkaufen gehen, ob wir ins Witzhaus, ob wir ins Kinotheater, wird noch ein bisschen dauern, und aber auch Konkret, ob wir unsere Kinder in die Schule schicken können oder äh, zu Hause oder anders wie betreuen. Und mittlerweile, in welchem Umkreis wir draußen uns bewegen dürfen. Ja, ich habe mich selber im letzten halben Jahr ähm, ähm, befasst ähm, mit dieser ganzen Geschichte. Der eine oder andere hat sich äh, auch schon mal gefragt, was bedeutet denn eigentlich logarithmische, exponentielle Entwicklung? Hat sich dann vielleicht hier oder dort äh, erklären lassen über das Morsche Gesetz, immer noch die beste. Äh, Im Endeffekt... Ich habe hier da angefangen, ganz am Anfang, ähm, habe da so eine kleine Grafik aufgehängt in der Küchenschranktür bei uns zu Hause. Angefangen beim halben Punkt pro 20.000 Bewohner dort, wo ich halt wohne. Und ich hatte eine Erwartungshaltung auch eben, dass sich diese Geschichte logarithmisch äh, entwickeln wird. Das war dann bis heute nicht unbedingt, vielleicht ab und zu mal ähm, teils, aber dann doch nicht so stark. 
Als es dann ging um diese Wirkung von Tests und Impfstoffen, hat sich sogar der eine oder andere an statistischen Begrifflichkeiten wie Sensitivität oder Spezifität gewagt. Ich werde jetzt nicht darauf eingehen. Ich habe in der Vergangenheit bei der Firma Intel schon immer gelernt, dass Ziele messbar sein müssen. Ich schaue täglich, wie viel positiv Getestete pro 100.000 es bei uns gibt. Und so richte ich meinen Alltag darauf ein und immer stärker in den nächsten Tagen. Ich glaube, ab morgen, wenn wir das jetzt hören, sind wir ja mittendrin in den verstärkten Lockdown. Und dann werde ich auch wissen, wie weit ich von zu Hause gehen darf. Also der, der Punkt ist, Datenzahlen, die sind nicht nur für maschinelles Lernen, für KI immer wichtiger, aber bestimmen auch immer stärker unseren Alltag mit allen positiven, möglicherweise auch negativen Folgen, die das hat. Genau, und es wird spannend sein, was davon dann am Ende des Tages bleibt. Ähm, ob dieses, diese Zahlen, Daten, faktenbasierte Analyse bleibt oder ob sich das wieder ganz schnell verhindert. Es gibt ja auch Leute, die sagen, wir schauen viel zu viel auf diese Zahlen. Ähm, gibt es ja auch andere Meinungen zu dem Thema. Ich habe nur ganz spannend vielleicht gesehen, um das Thema einmal noch zu stressen, die, die logarithmische Entwicklung in London, sowas habe ich noch nie gesehen. Also die Tatsächlich das, eine logarithmische im Sinne von äh, Woche auf Woche? Ja, oder? ja also sowas habe ich noch nie gesehen. Wahnsinn. Hm. Ja, wir wollen jetzt nicht zu stark Richtung Corona, aber ja, genau so ist es. Und ich habe da noch heute Morgen sogar in der FAZ, in der FAZ, gibt es so einen Teil, wie erkläre ich es meinem Kind? Und da wird aber auch über den negativen Teil der, weil äh, was bedeutet jetzt eine Zahl und wie, wie wird diese Zahl äh, erkundet? Und diese Zahl, die dann jetzt in den letzten Tagen aus unserer Weihnachtszeit resultiert hat, ist halt eben nicht dieselbe Zahl oder nicht direkt vergleichbar mit den Zahlen vorher. Ja, schauen wir mal. Aber ich, 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 ich denke, dass tatsächlich dadurch, dass wir als Gesellschaft auch immer stärker uns mit KI, maschinelles Lernen und mehr Leute, dass, wie wichtig die Zahlen sind, ich glaube, werden wir uns immer mehr damit beschäftigen, auch mit den negativen Seiten eben dafür zu sorgen gemeinsam, dass diese negative Seiten der Zahlen so wenig wie möglich auftreten. Sehr schön. Ich habe noch was Positives mitgebracht und zwar ähm, Ende letzten Jahres, also kann man ja schon sagen 2020, Ende 2020, gab es eine Meldung, nämlich Festo hat seine Reinforcement-Hand, ähm, nicht seine Hand, sondern die haben im Prinzip die, die Software Open Source gestellt, für diese Softwarehand. Wir haben, wir haben gerade im Vorgespräch gesagt, Peter, vor zwei Jahren, glaube ich, zu Hannover Messe äh, haben wir die Nason-Freunde, den Jan Kautnick, äh, getroffen und der hat uns das erklärt. Ähm, ich weiß nicht, welche Folge, Folge 10 oder so. Und jetzt ist dieses Softwarestück äh, dieser Hand, dieses Reinforcement Learning dieser Hand, Open Source verfügbar. Ähm, ich referiere nochmal auf unsere Folge 69 zum Thema Open Source und KI, was man da beachten muss, wie das geht. Ähm, aber klar, diese Hand war halt auch eine Spielerei, so wie viele andere Dinge bei Festo auf Messen oft Spielerei sind, dieser Vogel oder ähm, dieser, dieser Elefantenrüssel. Aber spannend, dass sie das jetzt Open Source stellen. Ja, genau. Das war die Folge 6. Derjenige von Ihnen, der oder die das nochmal nachhören möchte, ist fast zwei Jahre her. Unglaublich, ne? 17.04.2019. Und 
das Interessante, warum wir das damals gemacht haben, und damals gab es ja noch die echte quasi Hannover Messe. Ich habe wir, oder ich separat haben wir, glaube ich, dann den Jan auch besucht und mit ihm damals schon geredet. Es ging darum, dass der Jan, der ja Kollege von Jürgen Schmidhuber, die ICA, ein auf Reinforcement Learning, also bestärkendes Lernen, damals noch ein ganz, ganz neuer, immer noch ein sehr neues, sehr vielversprechender KI-Ansatz. Und die haben damals für und mit einem Team von Fessor diese Software für diese Hand entwickelt. Ich habe das ja auch geteilt auf LinkedIn und ich muss sagen, die Reaktionen, die waren von auf der einen Seite, ja, wieso, nichts Neues, das macht der Microsoft seit zehn Jahren so ungefähr, hat die eine Gruppe gesagt, aber die andere Gruppe hat gesagt, mh, ob das aber mit dieser diese Entwicklung, diese Open Source, wo der eine gemeint hat, es hat doch oft, wenn es auch um diese Gabel geht, ne, diese Forks, also ich habe eine Entwicklung und der eine oder andere sagt, ah, aber diese Entwicklung, die da jetzt losgeht, die ist doch nicht so, wie sie sein soll. Gehen wir mal einen Schritt zurück und dann machen wir einen neuen Gabel auf. Der hat gemeint, dass man, ob das die, die Frage gestellt, ob das dann mit KI, mit Modellen überhaupt möglich sein wird. Also ich denke, wir sollen es weiter verfolgen und ob das so ist, wir haben schon darüber gesprochen, dass es auch möglicherweise ein neues Geschäftsmodell geben könnte, wo Modelle entwickelt und Modelle quasi vermarktet als Service angeboten werden. Genau, das hatte der, der Sepp Hochreiter in der letzten Dezemberfolge uns ah, genau. mitgegeben, dass er gesagt hat, das könnte mhm. ein Wachstumsmarkt sein für Unternehmen, Modelle anzubieten, so wie GPT-3 und daraus rausnehmen und da im Prinzip dann ein Few-Shirt-Learning draufzusetzen. Ja, spannend. Was hast du noch, Peter? Ich habe einen Punkt. Derjenige von Ihnen, von euch, der... Interesse daran hat, auch mal autonom zu fahren. Der kann das machen quasi eine Stunde lang von nördlich von München, fängt an in Unterschleißheim, der eine oder andere, der sich auskennt, durch den Münchner Norden in einem Ford-Fahrzeug durch BMW-Territorium. Der Norden Münchens ist ja geprägt von BMW-Gebäuden. Da steht ja auch der, das, das Hauptgebäude, der Zylinder. Und dann geht es wieder zurück nach, nach Unterschleißheim. Und interessanterweise ist mit Technologie sehr wichtig, der israelischen Firma Mobile Mobile Eye, das ist eine Intel-Tochter. Und man stellt das Auto dann ab auf dem Parkplatz vor dem Gebäudekomplex BMW Autonomous Driving. Ich will damit gar nichts sagen. Ich weiß nicht, ob es mit BMW zu tun hat oder nicht. Wie gesagt, fahren tut man in einem Ford. Sehr interessant. Ist nur mit Kameras ausgestattet, dieses Auto. Das wird vorher erklärt. Also so wie eigentlich nur der Elon Musk, der Tesla-Mann, das tatsächlich auch vorhat. Alle anderen Anbieter, auch die Mobile Eye, ähm, haben vor, zusätzlich dann noch diese Fahrzeuge mit, mit Radar, mit LIDAR-Systeme auszurüsten. Es geht hier offensichtlich um eine... Testsystem. Es geht nicht in die Innenstadt, was ich gedacht hatte. Sie sagen, wir fahren München, aber sie fahren nicht in die Innenstadt rein. Ich glaube, dass es wichtig ist für den Stand der Dinge. Der Fahrer, der sitzt ähm, äh, hinterm Lenkrad, Hände griffbereit auf seinen Knien, äh, greift aber kein einziges mal ein und es geht äh, über die Haupt-Ein- und Ausfallstraßen, wie gesagt, im BMW-Territorium. Was sieht man? Man sieht die Bilder der Frontkamera. 
man sieht, was der Algorithmus daraus macht. Das ist natürlich das Allerinteressanteste. Ich kann da wählen zwischen Frontansicht oder auch Vogelperspektive, wo ich mich quasi über meinem eigenen Auto befinde. Ich sehe eine geschätzte, ich weiß nicht, 100 Meter vor dem Fahrzeug. Also der Algorithmus, der sieht 50 bis 100 Meter, sieht er die Autos, die vor einem fahren. Er sieht, was links davor, links von uns ist, ne, auf der gegenüberliegenden Fahrbahn. Er sieht rechts von uns, was auf der Fahrbahn dort ist, vielleicht äh, geparkte Autos, Fußgänger und so weiter. Ja, es funktioniert alles gut. Es gibt zwei, drei interessante Momente. Es gibt ein kritisches, würde ich sagen, Einparkmanöver. Es fährt einer vor uns raus und er geht dann auf die Bremse und setzt dann wieder zurück. Ist auch im normalen Leben für menschlichen Fahrer nicht so einfach, abhängig wie schnell man das erkannt hat kommt der Fahrer noch gerade noch so rein und ich habe gedacht, jetzt muss der Mann eingreifen, muss er gerade nicht. Wir stehen auch mal hinter einer Feuerwehr, sehr interessant. Das dauert dann so vielleicht eine halbe Minute, bis dann die Autos, die hinter uns sich aufgestaut haben, anfangen, uns zu überholen, äh, quasi zwei oder drei Autos und dann, äh, dann folgen wir quasi. Und sehr interessant, einmal äh, kommt eine Person, äh, stellt ein Auto rechts von uns, uns ab, geht raus und macht die Tür auf und dann sieht man sofort, wie, der, wie das Lenkrad quasi so im Ruck so nach links geht, ähm, so eine direkte Reaktion. Alles im allem würde ich sagen, klasse Leistung, es ist sehr interessant, man muss es ja nicht eine ganze Stunde machen, wie ich das gemacht habe, ich wollte wissen, wo sie fahren äh, und ich denke, dass es sehr gut den Stand der Dinge repräsentiert. Zur gleichen Zeit, zum Abschluss, habe ich heute Morgen noch gelesen, dass der Weimo-Chef, mhm. dass diese Google-Tochter, der Kraftschick heißt er, glaube ich, der hat jetzt gesagt, äh, autonomes Fahren sei schwieriger als einen Raketenflug, auf den, auf wen er dort wohl äh, deutet und die sind ja auch schon sehr weit gekommen, aber er will damit natürlich auch ganz klar sagen, noch sind wir nicht so weit. Sehr spannend. Wir packen das Video oder den Link des Videos auch in die Shownotes rein. Hat auch einige Diskussionen bei dir auf LinkedIn gesorgt, dieses Video habe ich gesehen. Ja, genau. Ich habe auch noch was für die Shownotes, nämlich ein äh, interessantes Paper, jetzt kommen wir wieder zur Industrie, nämlich ein Paper, ein Referenzarchitekturmodell für Industrial Edge Computing basierend aufbauend auf die Rami 4.0, für die Plattform Industrie 4.0. Und da geht es darum, die Aspekte 5G, TSN, KI, OPC, UA, PLC Programming im Kontext von Edge Computing. Packe ich in die Shownotes, ist bei IEEE veröffentlicht worden, könnte man nachlesen, ist spannend, glaube ich, für unsere Industrieanwender. Und dann habe ich noch was, die TU Darmstadt hat nämlich ein, eine spannende Anwendung äh, präsentiert oder Forscher von der TU Darmstadt, ein Neural Howard Computer, Computing. Und es geht darum, Neuronalnetze kennen wir ja, lösen gut spezielle Aufgaben, aber im Gegensatz zu, zu Menschen können sie einmal gelernte Strategien schwer auf andere Aufgaben übertragen. Und die äh, Forscher der TU Darmstadt sind jetzt davon überzeugt, dass sie das geschafft haben, dass auch eine Übertragbarkeit stattfinden kann. Und äh, ich mache einen Link auch noch zu dem Paper der TU Darmstadt. Wie heißt der? Ein Howard Computer oder wie? Äh, Neural Howard Computing. Mhm. Ja. Interessant. Ja, sehr spannend. Und jetzt kommen wir zu unserem Hauptteil, zu einem Hauptteil, den habe ich dir äh, überlassen, weil mhm. es deine, dein Leib- und Magengericht sozusagen ist, <lacht> aus deiner Intel-Vergangenheit, jetzt stresse ich mal äh, ja. das Wort, 
<lacht> es geht um die Produktion von Semikontaktern und ähm, die Frage, wie Machine Learning oder künstliche Intelligenz dort Menschen und Maschinen unterstützen kann. Und du hast mit Calvin Ng ein Interview geführt und Calvin kommt, wie, wie wir schon am Anfang gesagt, aus den USA und hat in Berlin gegründet. Ähm, und ich fand, als ich das reingehört habe, Peter, einfach einen sehr angenehmen, netten, gut erklärenden Interviewgast. Ja, wo du das so sagst, hat er mich schon zurückgebracht. Ich, hab, ich hatte mir nicht mal vorgenommen, diese eine Firma, wo ich dann so lange gearbeitet habe, in diesem Jahr zu nennen. nicht mehr zu nennen. Aber ähm, ja, hat mich schon zurückgebracht quasi ins Silicon Valley. Sind, sind Waren sind bestimmt immer noch sehr viele Asiaten ähm, und ein bestimmter Typus, würde ich sagen. Ich hätte, wenn ich jetzt dran zurückdenke, ist schon ein paar Wochen her, das Interview, was ist mir hängen geblieben? Äh, tatsächlich Nummer eins, du hast es anfangs erwähnt, er ist quasi seinem Land als Amerikaner äh, entflüchtet vor vier Jahren. Und ich sehe da eine, eine kleine Parallelität quasi. Der ist, äh, und da werden wir in den nächsten Wochen auch noch drüber sprechen, wie andere Kollegen dann ganz bewusst Berlin ausgewählt haben. Er ist geflüchtet, er kommt irgendwie nach Berlin und überlegt sich dann, was er machen will, also nicht umgekehrt. Das ist sehr interessant und daraus entsteht diese Firma, die sich halt mit, ja, mit Data Science, mit Machine Learning, mit KI für eben die Halbleiterindustrie beschäftigt. Das ist, du hast recht, mein, mein altes Metier. Nicht unbedingt jetzt auf der technischen Ebene, obwohl ich auch die ein oder andere Fabrik damals besuchen durfte und schon ein bisschen den Prozess verstehen sollte, weil ich das den Menschen, den Anwendern näher bringen sollte. Es gibt viele Begrifflichkeiten, die nicht direkt in unserem klassischen Produktionsmetier zu Hause sind, aber sehr interessant. Es geht auch dort wieder darum, dass, was wir bei uns ja die Gesamtanlagen Effektivität nennen, in dem Bereich der Halbleiter, der Chip-Produktion zu verbessern, äh, unterm Strich. Und ja, sehr schönes Interview mit ihm. Genau, und wir haben das Interview in Englisch geführt und wir werden das Interview jetzt nicht unterbrechen, sondern äh, das in einen Flug sozusagen durchlaufen lassen, weil es immer schwierig ist, von Englisch in Deutsch dann wieder zu switchen. Und äh, fürs Zuhören ist es, glaube ich, einfacher, wenn man es in einem Stück ja. sich dann anhören kann, weil dann ist man einmal in der Sprache drin, hat sich reingehört. Und ich wünsche jetzt erstmal informatives Zuhören mit Calvin Ing und Peter Seeberg zum Thema Machine Learning KI in der Semiconductor-Industrie. Good morning, Calvin. Very nice uh, you're with us. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you? Where are you from? What have you been doing so far and what it is that you do today? Mm -hmm. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here today. Um, so my name is Calvin. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Conductive AI. So I'm originally from San Francisco. Um, my background is in materials engineering um, before founding Conductive. I was um, at Applied Materials, and I worked on Brightview Inspection and EB Metrology. And while I was at Applied Materials, I got the opportunity to work with some of the largest semiconductor fabs around the world. However, when Trump got elected, I decided to leave America. So um, I guess you could consider me one of those Trump exiles. So I took the time to travel around the world and 
I settled in Berlin to start um, a company. So that's how um, Conductive AI was born. So what we've been doing is we've been working with um, companies here in Europe, um, semiconductor fabs and research institutes, um, to help them improve production yield and to um, reduce their time to market for their semiconductor products. And so today um, we're assembling a larger team and we're doing fundraising for our company. That sounds great. You have introduced yourself as Kelvin. You didn't mention your family name. Please do, because I've got a specific question related to your family name. <laughs> well, my, um, my last name is Ng. There you go. Well, the first, that's what I needed to hear because, and, that, and now the question comes already, and I'm sure that many people ask you, if we talk about Künstliche Intelligenz, artificial intelligence, there is this famous person with the same family name, which I, in the past, never knew how to pronounce it. So I think I heard you say Ng, <laughs> uh, and the person I talk about in this case is Andrew. So, and the question then, of course, is are you in one or the other way related to the uh, Coursera co-founder? Um, I'm sure we have some relationship, you know, <laughs> some somewhere in the okay. in the history. But um, okay. unfortunately, we're not directly related. <laughs> okay. But I always tell people that we are, you know, somewhat related. Somewhat, yeah. Okay. Is Ng is that a Asian name in in most general terms speaking, or yes, um, specifically it is Cantonese. So it's from you know Hong Kong, um, southern China. Very good. Thank you very much for that. So thanks for that general introduction. Maybe immediately reacting here to uh, you suggesting that you are from San Francisco. I've been spending uh, some time in the Valley with Intel. We may be talking about them today or not, but the theme today is artificial intelligence and semiconductor manufacturing. Mm -hmm. But before I forget, so you say you uh, you left San Francisco for specific reasons that we don't discuss here in further <laughs> detail politically. But I immediately thought of another company which is based in Berlin today, which is called Merantix. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, so they are a shop, you know, setting up um, in very many different markets. AI activities and I learned from them that and they are German guys originally who lived uh, for I don't know how long in San Francisco and they then decided to come to Berlin for the reason that would the thing that they want to do you know they were going to be uh, in a city that attracts people locally and that's why I thought of you you somehow came to Berlin and then decided to um, to start your company. So maybe talk about a little bit about what is your company, Conductive.ai, and maybe the, the link, if there is at all, uh, to Berlin, why your company is based then in Berlin. So it's actually quite interesting that um, me and my co-founder, we, we met in Berlin because I'm a U.S. citizen and he's a Russian citizen. So we met, you know, next to the Berlin Wall. Um, so one of the reasons why um, I decided to come to Berlin to start a company is because um, it's one of the up-and-coming startup, basically, capital in Europe. And it's very cheap in terms of the living costs when you compare to San Francisco. It's basically, 
you know, living here, I'm living here almost, you know, for free. So <laughs> it's one of those um, places where you meet a lot of people. There's a huge diversity of talents here. And especially with the universities around here in Berlin, there's a lot of talents. There's also a lot of um, startup already. So there's already an ecosystem here that is set up um, to support new companies. The German government and the local government here in Berlin, they're also very supportive of um, startups. For example, Berlin Partners, they help us a lot, basically expedited the, um, the process of getting our entrepreneur visa here. So we've gotten a lot of support from the, um, from the local agencies. So basically what we do at Conductive AI is we use a mixture of machine learning and physics-based simulation to reduce the time to market for semiconductor um, and other precision manufactured products. And we're using a variety of enabling technology, such as automated machine learning, federated learning, and explainable AI. Sounds great. And we'll, we'll come to talk about any of those in a couple of minutes. Uh, and when I hear reduced time to market, I must think back to my time with Intel here in Europe, close to where I'm living right now in the Munich area. Uh, and then, you know, whenever we did whatever, I started with 486, I believe, and some point in time Pentium. And the job was always to increase the speed to time to market, or in your words, reduce time to market. So getting into a little bit more detail than what your company does, you talk about zero interaction manufacturing or self-perfection process control. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so zero iteration manufacturing basically means getting it right the first time. So in the semiconductor industry, there's a very long ramp-up process. So even when you mm. have a design that's already you know, ready, you still have to figure out what exactly, you know, the temperature, what exactly the pressure to produce these um, chips. And you have, you know, 400, 500 steps along the way. Each of those steps, you have to come up with a recipe. So that means getting it right the first time is not something that is currently being done. Right now, it's like getting it right after, you know, six months or nine months. <laughs> so our, basically, what we wanted to do ultimately is to be able to get, you know, get the recipes right the very first time so that we can basically skip that very, very long um, ramp-up process. And self-perfecting process control basically means having somewhat like a um, cyber-physical digital twin that can be able to withstand the process shift, the um, process drift that happens within the production line. And there are lots of ways how they can shift and drift so each um, manufacturing tool they have their own maintenance history and each of their chambers they can degrade um, in a different manner so things are always shifting around so things are always happening in the production line and being able to self-correct and self-perfect that's something that we really really need to be able to avoid these shifts and drifts so that's great. Getting it right the first time is, as you say, you talk about sometimes six months, maybe sometimes shorter, I don't know, maybe not, maybe sometimes longer, I believe. And then again, I'm, I'm being kind of thrown back into my past where at that time, CEO Craig Barrett, and that was not about getting it 
with the new chips, but when when there was a fab that was producing uh, at a certain uh, process, he was always talking about copy exact, I believe, as it was. Mm -hmm. So the next factory was going to be, if possible, a 100 percent exact copy of uh, of the process of everything you can you will talk about that today and at the same time having said that uh, i'm not into the detail of semi-conductor manufacturing these days but i hear that for example intel uh, has been taking a little bit longer than usual with their uh, latest process so i i assume that that is kind of the environment in which you're working in i mean not necessarily with this one company but just as an example so tell us, what are the critical factors to determine the uh, success of a semiconductor fab? So there are basically three. So the first one is obviously yield. So yield is basically defined as the percentage of chips that pass the quality test. So anything that is you know below 80-90%, that is not profitable to the fab because they're throwing away you know, if, if you're at an 80% yield, that means you're throwing away 20% of the chips that you produce. Yeah. So produce is cheap. You know, you are using a lot of um, energy. You're using a lot of material. You're using a lot mm -hmm. of processing costs. So the yield is one of the most important factor. The other one is throughput. So um, how fast you can get this blank wafer to a bunch of chips. So obviously, the faster, the better. The last factor is obviously cost. So how much, let's say, the uh, how much material you use, you know, there's also, you know, chemicals that are fluctuating in price. So the, the formulation of your recipe sometimes would need to change based on that. And there's also the cost of, you know, labor, the cost of processing. So lots of small factors go into um, cost. Sounds a lot like the, the more general term of OEE, like original equipment efficiency. I'm not sure that that is being used in the semiconductor market. Have you heard of it? Do you use it or not? Um, I have not heard of it. No, right. So it's probably more in a different, well, excluding than semiconductor manufacturing, where maybe you have your own kind of KPIs, but it's very similar, you know, looking at, you know, can I change throughput? Can I make sure what you call yield, you know, at the end of the production line? Mm -hmm. And when you say uh, 80, that you say 80, 90%, I'm, I'm not sure where that number typically lies. It's probably always dependent on where you are in the, in the life cycle, etc. But of course, there are certain production processes. If you say, you know, certain pieces of a car where where that yield has to be more like, you know, 99.94%, something like that, which is then, of course, a lot easier because we're talking different production processes. But the idea is always the same, to make sure that you get the maximum, uh, a minimum, and then at the same time, a maximum of good quality, okay quality product out of your line at the minimum cost. So how does your approach then maybe different from most other process control software solutions that are used in FAPS today? Mm -hmm. So um, there are two big um, differentiating factors um, that the set sets apart from um, other process control softwares. So the first one is unified decision-making. And this is different from what's the conventional silo decision making. 
So what I mean by unified decision making is that we basically make a decision for all 400, 500 steps along the entire production flow at the same time versus having a silo decision making process coming up with individual recipes for each of the production steps. So the reason why we do this is because um, there's currently in the semiconductor industry, when you make decisions based on silos, you have to deal with a lot of integration. So there's already a very large department, integration department in um, these fabs that are dealing with, you know, coming up with a compromise between your your steps and making sure that there um, there are no downstream defectivity that are coming up, you know, a few steps after a recipe change. So what we're doing is basically we want to use a holistic approach to to this, you know, decision making. We want to come up with a meta recipe that can include the small um, step recipes all at once. So the second um, differentiating factor is that we can actually predict line level KPIs. So instead of just checking the number of defects um, after each step, checking the the metrology metrics after each step, what we want to do is actually predict the the yield, predict the cost, and figure out the throughput um, for the entire line together. So what this means is that each step you are um, contributing to somewhat to the yield and you're contributing to the cost and being able to figure that out and predict what's going to happen at the end is going to make a huge difference. Yeah, sounds great. It reminds me also, so the, the second one specifically speaks to me, so to say. So what you're saying is that you will find out if any kind of problem at let's say stage three of a line, what influence it has on a potential problem in stage, you know, fifteen, and how in the end it will turn out to influence the yield, for example. Right? Is that what it is that you're doing? Yes, absolutely. And um, one thing I did not mention is how it differs from most conventional, let's say, process control software. Mm-hmm. Since we are predicting line-level KPIs, it's completely different from the approach of you know, reactive process control. So reactive process control basically means you have a dashboard and you basically look for you know, spikes in your um, SPC charts. So if you have you know, a, a spike of you know, defects or some, um, some metrology values that are going uh, out of control, then you go back and you make changes to your recipe. So that's a very reactive approach that they're taking. And what we're doing is we want to do it in, the, in a very predictive and proactive manner. So this is what our second um, differentiating point is. Yeah, uh, yeah, very good. And that's what's typically being done in a number of industries that we've been following so far, and specifically in discrete manufacturing, to which I... I would or would not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of if we differentiate between a discrete and process manufacturing. I mean, there's a lot of fluid and gas and stuff involved, I assume, in uh, in chip manufacturing as well. But in the end, what comes out is a discrete piece, right? Is a is a wafer 
to be cut into, I don't know, tens or hundreds of, uh, of different chips. But this approach of which we have had for, I guess, about like 20 years called condition monitoring, looking, you know, what is happening. Oh, shit, something goes wrong. Moving into to a machine learning based uh, predictive approach. You know, I need to see if, you know, if certain values are reaching whatever these um, these spaces here, then something is going to happen in the next uh, 10 minutes. Uh, that's what we see happening as well. And that's very interesting to hear from you that you confirm maybe with, um, you know, minor uh, different terminology that you're doing the same thing for your uh, customers. You already mentioned two specific approaches, technologies, um, federated learning, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and AutoML, which we have been using about here as well. But just in your words, what are they and what do you use those approaches for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so federated learning is basically a subset of decentralized um, learning, or you can call it distributive learning. So being able to basically perform, um, build a model based on data coming from many different sources, but not inside one silo. So one of the reasons why we need this in the semiconductor industry is because we're dealing with a lot of different tool vendors. So you have processing tools from applied materials, from KLA, from LAM research, and they're all competitors. They're not willing to share their data with each other. They're also not willing to share their data with the fabs themselves. So it's very, very hard to you know, optimize for the line level KPIs without these raw data. So federated learning is the the perfect solution for this because we can actually implement it so that um, you don't have to pull all your data together in one silo. You can build a model for the entire production line without having all the data together. So that's federated learning. And AutoML is also very important to us because, as I mentioned before, with the, the process shift and the process drift that are constantly happening inside these production tools, inside these um, chambers, it's very, very hard to build one model, you know, every uh, a few days, you know, every week. It's basically impossible to do that when you have uh, a few hundred um, chip designs going on and you have many, many, many production lines um, inside of apps. So automated machine learning allows us to quickly uh, adapt to the changes that are happening in production in real time and adjust the models that are being used. And this is one of the um, the cornerstone for self-perfecting process control. That sounds really great. So federated learning, yes, as w as we've discussed it, which is like, you know, um, um, GDPR positive, so to speak, you know, when which is not such a big of an issue normally um, in manufacturing. It's more of a topic in consumer space, right? But so federated learning, you know, allows you or facilitates you to to deal with data that include personal data from, from humans. You say, yeah, you have a similar topic, but in your case, it's about so many organizations being involved and they all sit in their own data, but maybe they allow you to look at the data as long as you keep them at their side of their piece of the equipment, is my understanding. And AutoML, 
also very interesting. So you see, it allows you to adapt easier, to more easily adapt to changes. Quickly, one more question there. How far is are you then with AutoML today? We typically have this discussion today that we see a lot of research going on. There is a big research um, here in Germany uh, with Google happening, but you actually have you know solutions running on AutoML today or Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually we already have a MVP using automated machine learning that's able to do algorithm selection and also hyperparameter selection. So, um, you know, when you have a data set and you import it into our MVP, we can actually figure out what's the best algorithm to use, figure out the best neural network structure for it, and come up with the hyperparameters that are most suitable for this particular data set. Very good. Do I or listeners find more information about this on your website or not today, maybe in the future? Yes, ab- absolutely in the future. Um, so okay. we're, on, we're in the process of revamping our website. Right now, it's a very, very minimalist page. Okay. That, that's okay as well. You already have an MVP, you say, and there is going to, is, it's going to be more to come. Uh, so what more can you say about your AI approach using neural networks? What about your hardware? Are you working in the cloud or for the reason you just said, maybe more edge-based, facilitating your federated learning, supervised, unsupervised? Uh, reinforcement learning will be one specific thing that, that I may be coming back to later. But what can you share with us there that is relevant to your approach? Mm-hmm. So we're m- mostly working with um, neural networks, and then we use patient optimization to optimize our recipes. We also do spatial modeling with VAEs and GANs. These are generative methods. Um, in terms of the hardware, we, we do it two different ways. So we use the cloud for physics-based simulation. These are very heavy Finite element analysis or molecular dynamic simulation kind of um, mm-hmm. kind of physics based simulations, and um, the the modeling and inference we do it on the edge. And there is also one very interesting development um, that's happening in the field with analog AI and analog computing. That's something that we are also very interested in um, getting into as well. I haven't heard about that at all. What what should I think about when you talk about analog AI? So analog AI specifically in, in this context is the ability to do these, let's say, calculations in mm-hmm. SRAM, basically in the memory. So not even using the CPU, GPU, but using SRAM. Okay. So that is, you know, as close so to say or central on the edge as it gets absolutely okay good um one other thing i'm not aware of you 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 compared vas is that right to gans vas what are they they are a similar kind of algorithmic approach to gans or no um i said vaes oh vaes okay but and still what are vaes so vae and gan they're both you know, a generative method. Okay. VAE stands for variational autoencoder. So they're oh, okay. yeah. So they're quite similar in a way, but um, in terms of implementation, they're slightly different. 
Okay, yeah, that would go too detailed for us here anyway. Uh, you haven't talked about your your target audience, your customers, you know, feel free to share uh, a name or two if you can. If not, that's not a problem. But at least who are you targeting? So uh, being in Berlin, you know, uh, are you targeting uh, European silicon manufacturing in the Munich area? I happen to be very close to one of them. I mean, we don't have that many. Or is that a, you know, is that a global market that you can approach from doesn't matter wherever you are? Mm -hmm. So we have three segments that we're targeting within the semiconductor industry. So mm -hmm. basically the production fabs, the equipment vendors, as well as the R&D fabs. So with um, the production fabs, we've already worked with global foundries in Dresden. Um, so we already completed a paid proof of concept um, project with them. Okay. And then with equipment manufacturers, there are a lot of them here in Europe, actually. So you have ASML, you have uh, other ones here, um, Extron. And with the research fabs, there are also a lot of them here, you know, with Fonhofer, with iMac. Mm -hmm. And we're actually really lucky to be a part of um, the iMac iStar programs. So we're working with them to come up with, you know, projects, um, feasibility studies, and things like that. Okay. Yeah, we've talked about ASML a couple of times. Me, not not because I'm Dutch. <laughs> I was born not too far away from where they are based, AXA Philips, right? Uh -huh. But more because we've talked about discrete manufacturing companies. I always need to be careful. Trumpf, which is not the same as the still president that you mentioned at the beginning, but Trumpf, which is um, the laser manufacturer component mm -hmm. uh, provider for ASML, and as well as size. And as I mentioned in the past, I had the opportunity to work with, I can't go into detail for NDA reason, but okay, so we got a, a little bit of a feeling then who it is um, that your customers are. Extending a little bit what I said in the beginning or what you said, you're based in Berlin. Tell us a little bit about your team. You talked about the two guys, uh, you and your Russian colleague that found it. Have you grown? What are what kind of people are they? Are they, you know, data scientists uh, like you? Are they people from material engineering? Yeah, share a little bit about it. Yeah, so we're at four people right now. So we have recently onboarded a experienced, um, let's say, AI expert um, from the semiconductor field. So his name is Vadim. Um, he used to work for um, Nanotronics, which is one of the best funded startups in the semiconductor field um, over in the U.S. So he's contributing a lot um, because um, he's very experienced in R&D as well as in the, the patent field. So he's providing a lot of the expertise to our company. The other guy that we onboarded recently is Patrick. So he's a PhD of physics from the University of Oxford. So he's helping us with a lot of the, the physics-based simulation um, stuff that we've been doing. And he also has a lot of expertise in photonics and 3.5 semiconductors. So these are the two areas that we have a very large interest in. So he's providing a lot of that expertise and competence to the company. So right now, um, the company is very much remote first. So uh, Vadim is actually based in New York and Patrick is based in um, the UK. 
So we have people all around the world, but this also gives an, gives us an, an advantage because we have network um, in the U.S. and we also have network in the U.K. Um, besides okay. the ones that we already have here in okay. continental Europe. Sounds great. In the end, I'm going to ask you if you think that uh, NVIDIA is going to be uh, successful buying ARM, but uh, I'll keep that to the end. <laughs> and one thing I forgot to go into more detail, uh, if I'm taking too much time, let me know. Uh, I'm only going to have a couple of questions on the case studies, and then uh, that should be it. Uh, but reinforcement learning was a specific one that you didn't mention and probably don't use, but I'm, I'm just very interested in the technology as such. Specifically, as you mentioned, you come from uh, material engineering. Now, I studied uh, architecture in the Netherlands, and I have been sharing with our listeners that, you know, we at that time were, we were pushing concrete, you know, uh, with huge machines like, as until it would break. And then we see, okay, concrete breaks at whatever kind of Newton force, right? And then we, we know, okay, if we're now designing, it's always going to be to whatever, max of 10, 20% of its force, the same with steel. Now, what I understand that these days, uh, you can still do that, but you can use more and more in specifically material engineering in designing new materials. You're going to give an algorithm like a, a reinforcement learning approach. You're going to give uh, targets to say, you know, this is my new material that I'm looking for. And then, you know, uh, RL, you know, helps you to find in this huge space of capabilities, you know, one, two or three potentials, which then you as an engineer will work with is that something that you guys look at or that because of what it is that you do as a company is not relevant to your approach so we're focusing on the the production phase of um, mm -hmm. of semiconductor right. manufacturing but what you mentioned is actually quite interesting as well because there is a company called citroen informatics um, they're based mm -hmm. in valley and doing, they're doing exactly that, using artificial oh, okay. intelligence for materials discovery. So maybe you know, maybe you can have your next podcast with. <laughs> no, that, that was a very good, you know, just an answer confirming my understanding. Yeah, you say you concentrate on uh, on the production stage, and very good. Uh, let's look at one, two case studies, and then we're gonna uh, slowly close off. Maybe give us a like an overview or, or go into one or two, you know, specific case studies just to give us a, an idea of what it is that you specifically can do for your customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the um, use cases that we have is what we call the, the privacy preserving digital twin. So I already mentioned this a little bit. So the, the problem that exists inside the semiconductor fabs today is that a production line generally includes production tools uh, coming from many different vendors. And mm -hmm. even within a single process step, there are sometimes tools from different vendors. And they are very IP sensitive. So it's very difficult for a fab to optimize for the line level KPI, such as yield, throughput, without accessing these sensitive data from the vendors. So we use federated learning to, to help us to model these um, production lines and so that we can do optimization on the line level KPIs across the different tools without exposing their IP. So um, being able to build a digital twin, but also preserving the privacy of 
the vendors. Another one of the, the, the use case that we have is for tool matching. So in semiconductor fabs, usually you have a fleet of production tools that are the exact same model. So, you know, you see that in high volume manufacturing fabs, you have four or five of the exact same production tools, um, you know, deposition tools or edge tools. And um, trying to match the hardware is very, very difficult because it involves the constant tuning of hardware parameters by the technicians. And you also have to run these, what we call daily quals. Basically, you have to run the wafer and then see how this wafer look like after you know, being processed by each of these production tools. So this is one of the reasons why it's very difficult to maintain um, a copy exact fab because you have to constantly run these um, daily quals and you have to constantly tune your parameters. So our approach is a little bit um, different. So what we do is we, instead of trying to match the hardware, um, we try to match the results. So we use chamber level digital twins to create automated localized recipes. So we allow the recipe to, to differ slightly but this will allow us to, you know, to, to tolerate the small hardware differences. But at the same time, we compensate it in the, in the parameters to basically achieve the exact um, wafer results. Sounds great. At the end, I'm going to ask you, where is this market going? Um, I think you've been telling us a couple of new developments uh, already but where, where do you see this market in three five uh, ten years from now mm -hmm. so semiconductor manufacturing is very interesting because it's something that everybody uses but nobody actually you know uh, not a lot of people actually know about it and at the, one of the one of the uh, most interesting aspect of it is that countries around the world they are treating semiconductor as a strategic industry And they're trying to obtain um, strategic autonomy and, you know, what we call digital sovereignty. And Europe is slowly realizing that as well, because semiconductor is so essential to the military, you know, to intelligence, to, you know, supercomputers. Every nation wants to have their own semiconductor industry and be able to produce their own semiconductors. In the next, you know, three to five years, we are still going to see Asia, um, specifically um, Taiwan and um, South Korea dominating the market with TSMC and Samsung being the, the most significant um, ones. But here in Europe, you know, we definitely realize that there is a deficiency. Um, and that, so recently there is actually a new development. So the European Union actually um, came up with a declaration to um, invest up to 145 billion in the next two to three years with a goal of getting to um, two nanometer node. So this is an area that, that we, we are you know, definitely um, catching up here in Europe. Um, and we see U.S. trying to do the same thing as well, you know, with TSMC building a fab in Arizona. So there is a lot of um, political will to strengthen and to support the semiconductor industry. And with... Zero iteration manufacturing, uh, we definitely think that we can um, contribute to the development of um, digital sovereignty here in Europe. 
Thank you very much. Yes, because that means at my time, that's now, no idea, 15, 20 years ago, I recall the latest FAP that I was part of. Intel building was an island, I believe, that was 1 billion at that time. And I think today we're speaking, it's more like a, its own Moore's law, I guess. So we're talking more like 10, 20 billion uh, for a new FAP, right? So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I assume that whatever you can you can help to to speed up the production, reducing the time to market, as you said at the beginning, will help. So resulting final question, you could prepare for it, maybe if you wish to answer it. So is NVIDIA going to be successful buying ARM, assuming that you have a good view on the global semiconductor manufacturing market? Oh, so this is a question that <laughs> it's it's a difficult question, you know. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of um, M&A activities in the semiconductor industry. So recently we have Intel buying machine learning startups and then we have yeah. um, companies, you know, LAM Research buying up um, competitors. So, you know, there's a lot of money in the industry and these big players, they have a lot of capital. But... Um, for NVIDIA to buy ARM, I think there's a lot of there's going to be some political opposition. Um, there's going to be some fear amongst, um, let's say, China and other um, developing countries because ARM designs are used everywhere around the world. And to be monopolized, let's say, for it to be monopolized by one company, I think that's going to be very difficult to to hear. And you know, even with Apple you know, switching to their Apple Silicon design, which is based on ARM, you know, mm -hmm. you see more and more, this is the ARM design is going to be very, very um, crucial to a lot of the, the new, newer, um, newer developments. So it's going to be quite difficult for them to, to, to stomach that unless there is, you know, some kind of um, arrangement for it to, yeah. to be kind of like an open access or, mm -hmm. you know, a similar arrangement, but it's it's very difficult to say. Good. Thank you very much for that. Uh, not really different. I mean, I was not going to expect a very clear yes or no on this. I think future will tell. Calvin, thank you very much uh, for sharing uh, your experience, your view. Um, I hadn't been... Uh, so close to it for quite some time. I'm sure that uh, our uh, listeners are going to be very interested in uh, in learning about exactly what it is that you do in that market space, and then maybe you know one way or the other use similar approaches uh, in their own market. So thank you again very much. Thank you so much for having me. So Peter, das war die Podcast-Folge Nummer 79 mit Semiconductor und KI. Ähm, ich sage vielen, vielen Dank für dein tolles Interview, das du mitgebracht hast. Ich freue mich auf die nächste Folge mit uns ähm, und wünsche dir alles Gute. Schöne Grüße nach München. Schöne Grüße zurück, Robert. Ähm, ja, das ähm, neue Jahr hat angefangen. Ich freue mich sehr darauf, äh, für unsere Zuhörer, Zuhörerinnen mit dir gemeinsam die nächsten, ja, wie viele werden das, Richtung 40, 50 Folgen KI in der Industrie zu produzieren. Tschüss. Ciao.